Hello and welcome back to Future Prairie Radio, where marginalized artists explore the future through the lens of the arts, humanities, and culture. I'm your host, Joni Whitworth, and this is Season 3, Episode 8, Cultivating, with Claire Blaylock. Our communities are stronger when there are more voices that participate in the process of creating our world. It's always amazing to me how people rise to the occasion, prioritize other things that are better, maybe for the community and for the environment, for the people you're building for. Claire Blaylock is the executive director of the Architecture Foundation of Oregon. With a long career in arts management for organizations big and small, she's a passionate believer in the importance and essential nature of arts education and advocacy. Today she's going to talk to us about architecture education in the time of a global pandemic, her perspective as a parent and community organizer working with museums, and also how we might develop new educational programming for our communities that allows them to engage with their environment in a meaningful way. Here's Claire. My name is Claire Blaylock, and I'm the Executive Director of the Architecture Foundation of Oregon. I have a background in public history, museums, and urban spaces. I work on our educational programming for AFO, and it's a very exciting time because we're transitioning to a lot more virtual programming, and I think there's exciting opportunities for community engagement and access uh, to architecture and the arts across the state. Uh, my, so my pronouns are she and her, and I think about the future from the perspective not only of um, what the architecture field and the built environment community is sort of looking towards, but I'm also a parent. I have three young kids, so a lot of what I do, I'm thinking about what kind of world we're creating for them. I've been super lucky to have the opportunity to have a pretty extensive background with education. And um, I think education is a silver bullet. And so I think from that lens is how I approach not only what we do at AFO programming, but also my values as um, a community member in Oregon. I came to architecture sort of from the field of public history, which is a really big catch-all area of study. Public history is how events kind of leave a mark on the world around us. And one of the pieces of research that I did when I was a graduate student was actually around sort of epidemiology and how the cholera epidemic shaped industrialized uh, London. And I specifically, I used a computer mapping program called GIS and we looked, I was on a team that looked at how infant mortality rates corresponded with slum clearance and with changes that that happened in different areas of London as a result. So I think there's this really strong trend to see the built environment changing as a result of the kind of situation that we're in with the pandemic, but just with like a public health mindset. And I think what you're going to start seeing are communities focused on open spaces and focused on environmental health. I think you're going to see a lot more open air buildings. (laughs) And I think you're going to see, you're going to see from an office perspective, hopefully people moving away from an open office plan and into slightly more boxed off spaces, which is both a good and a bad, but 
think from a creative perspective, it really, again, is going to force designers and the architecture community to think about what people are after when they're using a space. So, and what's going to make them feel comfortable. I think that's something that I've seen a little bit talked about is people are going to be very nervous about being in large groups and around people they don't know for quite some time, even after we get a vaccine for, for COVID. That kind of anxiety is going to linger there. So with that in mind, how do you design a space? How do you change that experience so that it's actually something comfortable for people? So the Architecture Foundation of Oregon has been around for over 30 years, and we are made up of all the people who are involved in architecture. That's not just architects, that's actually architects, construction, engineering, artists, designers, uh, the people who use the, the buildings that are created. You know, architecture is a really all-encompassing term. AFO operates from a point of view that our communities are stronger when there are more voices that participate in the process of creating our world. It's not just one point of view in, that should be represented in how our communities are designed. We believe that the sort of strategic thinking and the creative thinking that oftentimes goes into the design process is actually a really transformative approach for both the designers and the professionals, but also for community members who are involved in the process. So we take that, we take that idea and that mission of participation and we execute on that through educational programming. Our, K, our third through fifth grade program, Architects in Schools, is our flagship one, probably our most well-known. And we're in, in the 2018-19 school year, we were in 174 classrooms across the state and served 5,400 students but we're also working on building our educational programming through hip hop architecture, which is aimed for middle and high school students. And we also support our uh, burgeoning professionals with our Hatfield scholarship that's given to a college student. And then our sort of mid-career professionals through the Van Ever Bailey Fellowship. So we do a lot, we do a lot. As we, as an organization, from an AFO perspective, we've really taken access to heart and access as a key to something that is really fundamental about our mission because you can design all of these beautiful buildings and you can design these amazing communities and worlds, but if, if people don't have access to them, then it's elitist and actually more divisive than than anything else. So it's, it's access to those kinds of spaces. But also, I will say this as well, that I firmly believe it's access to architecture, design, urban planning, all of that. It's access to that as a career choice. I think you see so many students who don't even know that it's necessarily an option for them. And um, the ones that do, I think, are pretty speaking for the architecture in the architecture realm, they take a look at the field and realize it's at the top levels at least very, what I jokingly say is male pale and stale. That's where education is the silver bullet. You know, when you cannot be what you cannot see. 
And it's such a huge responsibility, I think, for us um, as a community to go out and start cultivating diverse voices and opinions and participation at an early age. We are really excited to work with third through fifth graders. And I think some folks would say, look, why are you starting that earlier? Why, why are you focusing then? And it's for so many reasons, but not the least of which is that I think when you start this kind of creative problem solving and this creative thinking early, and when you start presenting careers like architecture and design and urban planning, when you start presenting that early as an option, you know, it sticks. It really, you're cultivating that little seed, right? And it's, that's what you're hoping to grow. Because none of these fields are going to change unless you get more diverse voices involved. And I think that's really important. So I, I think you bring in new perspectives and we're not just talking about, you know, ethnicities here. You're also talking about different social classes uh, or economic classes, excuse me, and different abilities, you know, and what does it mean to design a building for someone who's not, who's differently abled? What kind of abilities do you need to be taking into consideration? And then also just think about the using the user. My, as a mom, I have spent a long, long time looking for places to either pump or to nurse my kids when they were, when they were little. So it, if you're designing a space that is ostensibly for families or anyone, always include, you know, moms in that. What do moms need? What is, what do people actually want to see in the space they're using? It's so interesting to watch the architecture community, which in some ways, and I don't feel bad saying this, is slow to change and can get very set in their ways. But it's been really exciting over my involvement with AFO to see how architecture as a practice and as a community, including more than architecture, is really changing. And you have some great leadership going on, especially here in Portland. Lever Architecture is really doing a lot with, uh, with CLT and Mass Timber. And you're seeing companies like Adidas double down on that and say, okay, if we want to take sustainability really seriously, this is what we've got to start designing like we we're taking sustainability really seriously. But even more than that, you're starting to see these conversations around how environmental justice is social justice. And that's, I think, going to be a really huge theme that we're going to see in design as we move forward. Environmental justice means access, right? Access to a good, healthy, clean environment. Things like clean water, but also green spaces, fresh air, clean air, and, you know, the ability to to get outside and to, to feel safe in that, in that kind of environment. Um, it's something I think we as Oregonians feel very proud of, that we have this great natural world 
that we get to go and enjoy. But that's not the case for everyone. And I think we've seen a few events that have kind of highlighted it, not necessarily here, but like the Flint, the Flint water crisis is certainly a great reminder of that. But in order to have any kind of social justice or social equality, you have to have access to clean and healthy environments. One of the pieces from a from an organizational perspective, um, working in the nonprofit sector, one of the things that you see is that a lot of sort of the up and coming generation, the quote unquote millennials, one of the things that matters a lot to, to that generation, at least according to the data, is mission, right? You want to you don't want to support something that's just nice. You want to support something that's actually going to make a difference. So from a fundraising perspective, it is really telling our story and the impact that we have. If we're, from an AFO perspective, we, we actually have a huge impact and we have a lot we, we talk about with that. From an education perspective, I think AFO is really trying to look forward when it comes not just to trends within the architecture and design community, but also like what kind of world are we preparing these students to be a part of? And how does our programming reflect that? So actually we're going through, we're getting ready to start a curriculum redevelopment when, when the pandemic hit. So that's gonna change a few things undoubtedly, but we also are really, before, even before the pandemic, we really wanted to go through the curriculum and update it to include more about equity and inclusion in the design process and also environmental sustainability. It's a huge, it's going to be the number, number one issue that this up and coming generation is, is facing. I hate to keep bringing it back, but one of the things that this has really, uh, this situation has illustrated is that broadband and internet access is something that should be considered a utility. And I think once that is more equitably, equitably available um, to folks, regardless of who they are and where they are, I think the educational opportunities are, are pretty boundless, at least from our perspective, with kind of some of the virtual learning and the virtual teaching that we can do as an organization, especially into communities that don't necessarily have architects or designers who maybe live there. But if we can bring them virtually to classrooms, that can have a huge impact. So I'm hoping that when we see the future sort of arrive, it's a future that is far more inclusive and really provides a lot of access to these fields using whatever methods, you know, we can. I think you shouldn't be afraid to try things that don't work. Experiment. I think that's a really key principle when you're, when architects and designers are kind of sussing things out and puzzling things through is they try a lot of things that don't work and a lot of ideas that don't pan out necessarily, but it's all part of the creative process, right? You have to try a lot of things to get to your end point. But I also think Designing and making choices for your life and for your environment, your space and all of that, that really meets the user needs is super important. That sounds really basic, but think about 
what it is that you need. Like, what is it that makes, that makes you function as a person? And I think trying to design around that, be it making choices for your career and for the people you surround yourself with all the way to, you know, where you put your kitchen table <laughs> and um, how you organize your cabinets in the bathroom, those types of things. I think that perspective is really, really important. There's two pieces that I kind of go back to consistently. It's something, I have a background in theater and it's something that I wish somebody had told me when I was a young performer, but I, I always go to Ira Glass's piece on it's okay to make bad things when you're first starting out. It's incredibly basic advice, but it's, it's about this idea that you can't expect to be, if you sit down to write a novel, you can't expect to be, you know, uh, a genius right out of the gate. It's going to take some trial and error and it's okay. That is actually part of the process. Don't think of art and don't think of your creative outputs as simply an end goal. The whole journey is, is really important. And I think that's something that Ira Glass talks about just really beautifully, really, really beautifully. The second one is in times of crisis, make good art. And in times of change, make good art. And when nothing makes sense, make good art. I just, that, it just really speaks to the heart of um, what I want to be as a person. built environment and architecture in general, I think has the opportunity to really be so transformative in people's lives because you're cre we can create better spaces. We can create spaces that people that nurture and support and encourage, you know, people to be, the, be their best selves and to be happy and to thrive. I think that's a really important concept. So it's keeping that in mind in the design process. It's, it's really exciting to see how our folks are doing that. There's a fantastic project that is happening in Portland. It's a collaboration with a couple architecture firms and construction companies called The Living Building. Um, there's been some, some press around that, but it's one of the first living buildings in the country. And it's got... It's going to have everything from, you know, composting toilets to, you know, green roof and reusable and sustainable energy sources for all, for all of the power in the building. It's a pretty incredible piece of design that's happening right here in our state. And if that becomes the standard moving forward, I mean, think about that. Every building has to, you know, meet a certain degree of sustainability right now. But what if we raise the bar and what if we ask people to to reach even farther for that for whole new levels I, it's always amazing to me how people rise to the occasion when presented with new challenges one of the development companies that is really leading the way 
on that. And I think showing people how it can be done is Gertie Edlin. Um, they kind of were one of the first development companies to show that you can develop environmentally sustainable projects and be successful. Um, and you're also seeing some really amazing collaborations between the nonprofit environment and developers. And I think, I think you can do it. I think Kevin Cavanaugh, who runs Guerrilla Developing, he did a TED Talk um, in Portland a few years ago and caught, he talked about the concept of enough, like what is enough? And I think that's a really important mind frame when you're going into development in the future of, you know, what is enough? What is enough for you to, you know, meet your costs and to, you know, make an appropriate amount of capital, but that doesn't force you, but it will allow you to prioritize other things that are better maybe for the community and for the environment and for the people you're building for rather than the bottom line. It's a different way of thinking. If you'd like to see some of Claire's work or maybe sign up for some of her upcoming virtual events, check out af-organ.org. That's af-organ.org. Future Prairie is sponsored by the Bodecker Foundation, which was established in 2017 by Sandy Bodecker, Nike's legendary VP of Special Projects, as a tribute to his father, the award-winning author and illustrator N.M. Bodecker, who instilled a love and appreciation of the arts in Sandy and his two brothers. The Foundation's workshop, mentoring, and scholarship programs empower creative youth to imagine and achieve their artistic, educational, and professional dreams. Find out more at bodeckerfoundation.org. That's B-O-D-E-C-K-E-R foundation.org. This episode was written and produced by me, Joni Whitworth, and edited by Matt Larimer. If you have any questions or feedback about this show, we would love to hear it. Feel free to reach out anytime at futureprairie.com or on social media at Future Prairie. Thanks for listening.